that I've chosen to be identified, things such as hobbies or vocations or politics, religion. I'm a fisherman. I'm a pastor. I'm a conservative. I'm a Presbyterian and Reformed and on and on and on. And there are groups within groups that further define the we and the they. And some of our group's identities become so strongly felt that it seems a life or death matter. And often once we join a group, it becomes a part of our identity. And we have trouble thinking outside of that group. I struggle here politically. I'm fiscally conservative and I'm for limited government, but I have very different views on immigration than many Republicans. I'm very circumspect on what politics can even accomplish and Being different from the group can cause anxiety, and the group will always try to get us to conform back to its ideals. We see this very clearly in people who identify as LGBTQ. They find great acceptance within that group, but if down the road they realize that actually they're heterosexual and they begin to identify that way, they're often shunned and ostracized. And this this happens in all different kinds of groups. My point in raising this question is not so that you begin to identify with my groups or that you should join me so that we can all say we and they out there. My point is to draw your attention to the fact that most of our group distinctions that we set up are often not defined correctly. The boundaries between we and they are much broader, but we often think in terms of these group identities, we often answer basic questions about our world based on which group we find ourselves in. And so they, uh, they have an outsized influence on the way we view the world, on the way we answer questions like, who am I? Where am I from? What's the problem with the world and where am I going? Answer to these fundamental questions shape how we view and operate in the world. You see, the man in our text today, he did the very same thing. He was part of a group of very serious-minded religious people who considered themselves to be ideal members of the kingdom of God. And you might even say he was the confessional reformed Presbyterian of his day. They thought that just by belonging to their group and doing what their group did, there was no way that God would not accept them. This man comes to Jesus at night, wanting to know more. He's seen Jesus do powerful things and believes that only someone who comes from God can do these types of things. And so he wants to know more. But the conversation goes in a very different direction than he could imagine. As Jesus gives answers to questions that he didn't even think to ask. And by his answers... We learn that you cannot enter the kingdom of God by any natural means or by belonging to the right group or groups, even if they are religious groups. So we look closer, as we look closer at this exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus, I want you to keep this question in mind. Who can enter the kingdom of God? As you're able, please stand with me as we read together from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. It is also printed for you in your bulletin.
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the uh, salvation that belongs only to the Lord. And we thank you for the new hearts that you give us by the Spirit. And we ask that as we open up this text and we learn who can enter the kingdom of God, that you would give us eyes to see so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to be, we're continuing to look at this discourse with Nicodemus and Jesus that runs from, we we began it last week, verse 23 of chapter 2, all the way to verse 21 of this third chapter. And so over the next three weeks, including this morning, we'll be covering this uh, conversation that Nicodemus has, and then the author, uh, the Apostle John, his comments regarding it. And as we noticed last week, Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus doesn't know to ask. We focused our attention last week on verses 23 to verse 3 of chapter 3. And so we're going to be focusing today on uh, verse 3 to verse 8. And as we do, we notice that the response to Nicodemus' statement Uh, Jesus answers uh, with uh, a response that seems bewildering to us. Uh, It's a uh, when Nicodemus says this statement, he's really asking, who are you, Jesus? And what have you come to teach us? And how do we uh, account for these wonderful signs that you have done that testify that God is with you? And Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were a separatist movement within Judaism that advocated for strict devotion to the law and a strict separation from any uncleanness. And they had developed a very detailed oral tradition that they scrupulously kept. Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin, the council of priests and religious teachers who met to decide on legal matters with religious, political, and social ramifications. And he comes to Jesus at night, which may mean several things. Maybe he does not want to be seen with Jesus just yet. 
Or perhaps he wanted greater time to converse with Jesus. It was routine for the rabbis to gather together at night to discuss theology. Well, whatever the case is, John has a theological reason for telling us that Nicodemus comes at night. Darkness in the Gospel of John is often symbolic for blindness or for misunderstanding. And we're going to look even more closely at Nicodemus' misunderstanding next week when we look at verses 10 through 15. But what's conspicuously missing from this exchange between Jesus and a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin is the lack of animosity. Most of the exchanges that Jesus have with Pharisees are marked by enmity, a disagreement right from the very beginning of the conversation. But Nicodemus, although speaking somewhat as a representative, when he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, he doesn't try to trap Jesus with a loaded question. By the way, that's really never a good idea to try to trap Jesus. He is the Son of God, and he's ten steps ahead of you all the time. So don't try that at home. But here, Nicodemus seems genuinely curious to know. He wants to know Jesus, he wants to know what Jesus is teaching. And to that statement, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, we, we see in Nicodemus' response something like this. What? What are you talking about? That is completely absurd. Am I going to go back to my mom and then I'm going to crawl into her womb again and then I'm going to be born again? That's the absurdity that Nicodemus takes Jesus' statement to mean. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And it's interesting because in the Greek, the word for again, anothen, most often means from above. But it can also mean again. Mostly John uses it for above. He does so even in chapter 3 with John's statement later on. And it's clear from the context that Jesus means that unless you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus misunderstands that and thinks that he means born again, born a second time, naturally, of the flesh, He is thinking in terms of the flesh. And he betrays that he is still conceiving of the kingdom of God in terms of the flesh. And Nicodemus faces what's called disequilibrium. You have these assumptions, right, about how the world works. And then you learn something and it doesn't line up with what you thought before. And you're unsettled by that, right? We've all experienced that. In fact, that's what school is for. It's to lead you to know better, right? We have done a disservice to generations, or maybe not generation, but at least this generation of college students by pandering to their feelings, right? Instead of just teaching them something and letting them sit with the unsettling nature of that so that they begin to form new assumptions, we say, oh, your assumptions must be perfectly settled now that you're 19, Nicodemus has a worldview, and it doesn't include being born again. His worldview has been shaped by his culture, 
and as a teacher by the scriptures and by the groups that he belongs to. They have formed his identity. How our worldviews are formed is complex. They're formed not only by previous generations, but also by our experiences, and they're bounded on either side by our culture's plausibility structure. I know that's a big word, but I want you to get this concept. A plausibility structure is the web of beliefs that are so embedded in the minds and hearts of the bulk of a society that people hold them either unconsciously or so firmly that they never think to ask if they are true. In short, a plausibility structure is the worldview of a society, the heart of a society. And one of the main functions of a plausibility structure is to provide the background of beliefs that make arguments easy or hard to accept. For instance, since Obergefell, it is easier for our society to accept that marriage is between two consenting adults who love each other, whether same sex or not. And that has not always been the case. That has become the plausibility structure of our culture regarding marriage. For millennia, marriage was a very stable institution. In the past generations, it was impossible to accept as valid marriage between those of the same sex. Even in cultures like the Greco-Roman culture who tolerated or permitted or even celebrated homosexual behavior. They never considered the idea worthy of the institution of marriage. And I want to introduce the idea of a plausibility structure to you because our culture, their plausibility structure has an outsized influence on you and your worldview. We have grown increasingly polarized in our culture, largely because we have two very dominant plausibility structures vying for dominance in our society. We don't live in a culture that just has one structure. We have competing structures, and we see them vying for dominance in the media, in our politics, in our education, and even in the church. Right? You, might, you might reduce these to left or right. However it is, we look at the world in a certain way, and there are certain things that are plausible within that framework. And if we're not careful, we begin to adopt assumptions that our culture tells us are right without thinking through them. And it makes it it difficult for us to examine our own worldview and um, have it uh, derived from the Word of God. Nicodemus, you see, he has a very sophisticated plausibility structure that he has accepted based on what his first century culture thinks about the kingdom of God and who can enter it. I want you to notice the parallel in verse 3 and verse 5. Jesus says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But in verse 5, he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Which is it? And the, the, the parallel is that there are the same thing, seeing and entering. To see the kingdom is to enter it. And to enter it is to participate in it. And this is often in the Gospel of John summarized with the shorthand as eternal life. How do you have eternal life? How do you see, how do you enter the kingdom of God? 
How do you participate in it? Well, you have to be born again. Nicodemus was sure. He was absolutely certain. Given his culturally conditioned plausibility structure that faithful Jews would participate, would see, would enter the kingdom of God. And especially Pharisees. They're the most faithful. We sort of, because of Jesus' interaction, we look down on them. But they were revered in their culture. These were the men who were stalwarts of the faith. They did not bend on the outward uh, um, manifestations of their religion. They were faithful. Now, Jesus gets at their hypocrisy, right? That their hearts were not true. But as far as their culture went, they were respected. They were well respected. People wanted to emulate them. They wanted to be like them, even if they felt like they're in a different class than me. Kind of like we might think of a monk or somebody who has wholly dedicated their life to Christian service. We want to exemplify that kind of discipline, that kind of devotion to the Lord. And that's what the Pharisees were. And that's why they assumed that they were ideal candidates for those who would enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus is correcting that false presupposition about who can participate in the kingdom by telling him that it does not rest on your natural means. It's not about being born in this certain nationality or being a part of this zealous separatist group. But it isn't just that he got it wrong about which kinds of people or which groups. It's not that he needs to now align himself with a different group. Jesus is saying, you're not even in the same ballpark You don't even understand the concept that I'm teaching you. It is not flesh. It's not natural. It's nothing you can do to enter the kingdom of God. As Paul would say later, I tell you this, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15.50, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Jesus says, you're working with two... I'm... Totally different categories of people. Those born of the flesh and those born of the spirit. Like gives birth to like. And so long as you remain only, merely born of the flesh, then you have no part in the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus does not have a conceptual category to even place this in. This is why he's so puzzled. But Jesus can go on to condemn him for not understanding this teaching because he should have understood it. He should have known what Jesus was talking about. The problem was he is way more influenced by his culture than he is by the word of God. See, Nicodemus was blindsided because he failed to inhabit the world of the Bible. He had inhabited the traditions of his fathers instead. And many of those traditions, they started as very good things. Efforts were made to ensure that people did not transgress the commands of God. But but the unfortunate effect of all of that is often it turns the whole scheme of salvation into a work we do to earn it rather than a grace that we receive. One pastor illustrates it this way. There was a town, and it had a particularly gross-smelling sewage plant on the outskirts of town. And the children of the town were warned to stay away and not to smell the odor. 
but teenagers being what they are, they really brave ones started going down to smell the sewage. And they found that after they acclimated, that they really liked the smell. So they told their friends. And pretty soon, it seemed like all the teenagers were going down and smelling the sewage. Parents were distraught. They're trying to figure out what to do. Committees are formed. The elders were consulted. One group of elders thought the best thing that we can do is build a giant fence around the sewage plant. We got to keep these kids out of there. The other one, the other group said, yeah, that's a good idea. But we, along with the fence, we need a really big sign right out front. Do not smell the sewage. But would either of those really fix the problem? The problem, as the pastor saw it, was that the teens didn't need another law or a big sign to warn them. Those are fine. And they have their place. But what the teens needed was new noses. They needed new noses. They needed to know that what we are smelling is death and decaying. They needed to know that what they were loving was wrong. They needed new noses so that they realized how nasty that old sewage plant really was. That's what Jesus is telling to Nicodemus. You've got it all wrong. It's not about your law-keeping. It's not about keeping the traditions of your fathers. It's not about your genealogy. It's not about your genetics. It's not about your denomination. It's not whether you stand on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's about whether you have a lively faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about the flesh. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. You need to be born from above. Who can enter the kingdom of God? Can those merely born of the flesh enter? No. Only those who have been born of the Spirit can enter the kingdom of God. The prefix re, R-E, from the Latin means back, back from, or back to the original place. You think about all the words that start with re, renew, redeemed, reborn, reformed, recreated. So to express the concept that Jesus is teaching here, theologians affix re to the word for birth or becoming, which is generation. Regeneration, calling the new birth regeneration. If it's not flesh that it can enter the kingdom of God, then what? What or who can enter the kingdom of God? In verse 5, Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? From the Greek, we know that one preposition governs both nouns. So it's not two different births. It's not one who is born of the water, and one who is born of the Spirit. It's one who is born of water and Spirit. One event. Some theologians have seen in this a reference to Christian baptism, which, as later theology developed, did become symbolic. It became a sign and a seal of our regeneration. 
And in fact, the Catholic and some Lutheran churches do teach baptismal regeneration. That in your baptism, you are given a new heart. And you are cleansed from your sin. We don't teach that as Reformed Christians. We believe that the, uh, the, the work of regeneration is not tied to the moment of baptism. It could come before and it could come well after. But how, when Jesus hasn't died and rose from the dead, when he hasn't yet commissioned his disciples to go and baptize the nations, how could he ever expect Nicodemus to understand Christian baptism? The clue to what Jesus is referring to is found in his condemnation of Nicodemus in verse 10, of not understanding these things. Jesus says, how do you not, how don't, how do you not understand this? You're a teacher in Israel. So we have to back up and say, well, what, what would a teacher in Israel understand about what Jesus is teaching about being born of water and the Spirit? And of course, we have to go back to the Old Covenant. We have to go back to the prophets, and especially Ezekiel. And it's printed there for your, in your bulletin, but it's, I want to read this again because it's so important for us to understand what Jesus is talking about. It's it's, uh, in our Old Testament lesson in verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then skipping down to verse 24, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules." Why should Nicodemus, Nicodemus know what Jesus is talking about? Because the prophet Ezekiel said this would be the hallmark of the new covenant. That God was going to gather his people again. He was going to cleanse them with water. He was going to fill them with his spirit. He was going to make them once again his people. And he would be their God. Here in one prophecy, God includes both elements the washing away of sin, and the filling with the Spirit. And although Israel had profaned the name of God, He Himself was going to gather them and cleanse them and bring them back to their own land. He's going to wash them with water, cleansing them from sin, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh by putting His Spirit in them and causing them to walk in His law and promising to be their God and to make them His people. Only those with new hearts, only those who have had the heart of stone taken away and replaced with the heart of flesh, only those who have been cleansed from their sins, who have been filled with the Spirit, can enter the kingdom of God. I want you to notice, who's doing all this? Not Israel. God is doing this. As Jesus later said in chapter 6 of John, it is the Spirit who gives life. The spirit, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You do not become born again through any effort of your own. It is a supernatural work of the spirit. 
And anticipating Nicodemus's confusion over this, he uses the illustration of the wind. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We've watched and prayed over the past few days as Hurricane Ian has slammed the Florida coast. 150 mile an hour winds, flooding, record flooding. And the winds wrecked havoc on anything in its path. People can't even stand in that presence of that kind of wind. You can't see the wind, but you can sure see and feel its effects. So it is with the Spirit. His presence in the lives of those whom God calls, it's unmistakable. Here, evangelicals, especially uh, our Baptist brothers and sisters, they love to regale us with conversion stories. Right? This is where I would insert that story of that hell's angel biker gang who was radically converted to God and God changed his heart and he is now living faithfully. I mean, think of the story of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Those stories are wonderful, and we should rejoice in the way that God intervenes in the life of people and changes them. But the problem is that that's not the testimony of everyone. And sometimes we, we confuse regeneration with conversion. They are different. Regeneration is the work of God changing our hearts. Conversion is our acceptance of God's prior work. It takes the work of God for you to respond. When you do and are converted, sometimes it's miraculous. But sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes it dawns like the sun. Most people, and arguably the way God designed evangelism to take place, is the covenant nurture of our children. Israel, the most memorized section of the Torah, is Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus adds, and all your mind. And to remember the commandments of God, to do them. And then it says this in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The household becomes the primary locus for evangelism and the covenant nurture of our children. Paul picks up the same thing in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Despite teaching and preaching coming directly from the lips of God, Jesus' evangelistic ministry, his success rate was not super high. It was like there's 12... Then there's 11. Then there's 120. It's not big. It's not very successful for three years of ministry. And even the disciples, they don't really get what Jesus is doing until after he's been raised from the dead. Their faith grows gradually. Very few of them had radical conversion stories. But instead, faith dawned on them like the sun rising in the morning. See, we need, to be, we need to be aware of these distinctions between regeneration and conversion. Because when we conflate them together, it seems like we are changing our own hearts. We are becoming born again by accepting Jesus Christ. But we know that that's not possible. Because what do dead men do? 
They don't do anything. They wait for God to give them life. They wait for God to take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh, the first thing it does is respond. Yes, I need you, Jesus. The first thing it does is respond in faith. When and where the Spirit works, Jesus is saying that's not any of your business. You don't know where the wind starts. You don't know where it's going. But you can see its effects. You see the evidence of it. It's clear in the evidence. One pastor says, when the Holy Spirit blows, he messes your hair up. So it is with all those who have been born of the Spirit. Their lives will never be the same again. The diagnostic question for you is not, when was I born from above, but is the Spirit's work evident in my life? And we can point to two primary pieces of evidence of regeneration. First and foremost, regeneration results in an embrace of Christ. Faith in Jesus is the hallmark of those given new hearts. Before regeneration, the thought of faith in Christ seemed foolish. I mean, why would I believe that? But when God takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh, it's our sin that looks foolish. And Christ, who begins to look excellent, the most significant evidence that you have been born from above, do you trust in Christ alone for your salvation? And secondly, the evidence you have been born from above is seen in the new affection. You once relished your sins. You had great joy in sin and doing the things that were contrary to God's will. But when he makes you a new creation, what you used to enjoy becomes joyless. Now your sins, they bother your conscience and you're racked with shame and you want to flee from them. And you see how hideous they were. What was joy-filled before becomes gross and disgusting and you want to turn from it. That's a new affection. You have a new love implanted in your heart that inclines you towards righteousness. Imperfectly, right? We all wrestle against the old man. We all wrestle against the flesh. That's why Paul uses the ongoing language of walking. Walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Because we have both within us. But now as a new creature, you are marked by new affections. You love God. And are driven to desire to please Him. And that new affection drives sin out and makes it reprehensible. And it also replaces the enmity and hatred that you had for others with love. And especially love for those in Christ. All of us are born slaves to sin. With a sentence of death hanging over our head. But those whom the Lord calls, the Spirit unites them to Christ in their effectual calling. He gives them a new heart through regeneration and the Spirit's indwelling so that they are now new creatures in Christ. And the Spirit begins to bring about the fruit that accompanies that new life. And just as the effects of the wind are sin seen but not the wind, so also are the Spirit's work evident in the lives of those who are born from above. The doctrine of regeneration, like all other benefits we receive from Christ is not earned through your striving. 
It's not given because of your socioeconomic status or your political affiliation. Being born again cannot be tied to your denomination or your religious zeal. Regeneration is the work of God that you are entirely passive in. This is why we need to be cautious that we don't allow other issues to become the litmus test for who can enter the kingdom of God. It's not about which group or groups you belong to. It's not about which issues you are keen that the world sees you are on the right side of. By making regeneration about group identity, we're in danger of having the same frame of mind as Nicodemus. But Jesus' teaching on regeneration is only unsettling because we're so prone to turn everything into a work that we do to earn God's favor. But Jesus is teaching that it's not about your striving. It's not about getting all your theological T's and I's dotted. It's about God's promises. You will be his people, and he will be your God. What was Jack Miller always saying? Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Over the next two weeks, we're going to finish our discussion of Jesus with Nicodemus and see the great love of God displayed fully in his perfect plan of redemption, a plan which the Son executes. And here we saw today that the Spirit applies. So who can enter the kingdom of God? Only those who have been born of the Spirit can enter the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we're in awe at your great work of salvation. Though we, like Israel, have profaned your name among the nations, you have done it. You have sent your Son to enter into history, to take on flesh and dwell amongst us so that he can take on himself the sins of the whole world. And the Spirit was given to apply that redemption to us. To take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. To wash us clean from our sin and to fill us with your Spirit. Oh, Father, continue to do the work of filling us as we learn to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. May the evidence of the Spirit's work be uh, so apparent in the life of our church and in our lives individually as we walk out our faith trusting only in Christ alone and when it's in his name that we pray and amen saints before we come to the table together let's turn in our bulletins and sing